Coming to you from the secret bunker deep underground that is Pop Smoke Studios, about 10 meters below our existential crisis, just to make sure. Welcome to the inaugural episode of The Foxhole. I'm going to be your host, AJ Pfeffer, and each week we're going to have a new guest. For our first episode, I've invited on Daniel Sharp, host of the wildly popular Smoke Pit Podcast, available on Apple Music, Spotify, and other apps. He's also the editor-in-chief of American Grit, the media outlet from Grunt Style, which focuses on issues relevant to the veteran and patriot communities. He is used to arguing with me, so it seemed like a good break, a good way to break in the show. Say hi to the audience there, Daniel. Hello. And how are you doing this evening? I am doing fantastic. I am ready to get into this. This is an amazing concept. Uh, so let's let's rock it out. I love the energy you're coming with. All right. Well, then, in that case, time to dive in. So we're going to begin with the premise and the rules, okay? So uh, I'm going to kind of dig into it a little deep this time and uh, subsequent episodes, I'll just touch the, the cornerstones. So each episode, we're going to select a topic ranging from government programs to which one of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles was the best. Obviously, it was Leonardo, right? What? Okay. The other ones are good, too, but Leonardo, he was he was the one running the show. Follow-on episode. Please continue. Absolutely. So we're not just going to do politics. We're not just going to do government. We're going to do all kinds of different stuff. So I want to see if it's possible to debate a topic in this day and age with logic and facts without resorting to triggered screeching or anecdotal evidence. So all the arguments must be made from evidence. And if you can't provide your sources, your argument gets thrown out. Once we have our topic, we're going to flip a coin. If it comes up heads, I'll have to argue in favor. And if it comes up tails, I'll have to argue against. And my guest is going to obviously take the opposing side. So after that coin toss, we'll take a 30-minute break, allow both sides time to prepare. And when we come back from that break, each of us is going to have five minutes to present our case. After that, it's anybody's show. We'll see how it shakes out. That's so professional. I love it. Hey, man, you know, we, we're, trying to, we're trying to keep everything on the, uh, on the even scales. Yeah, so what, what's next? Well, next comes the coin toss. So for our first episode, I have this coin. It is an Iraqi Freedom, uh, an Operation Iraqi Freedom Challenge coin from our second deployment. Yeah, that looks familiar. That, um, that has our battalion's logo on one side and uh, various other logos on the other side. And it's, uh, and it's shaped like the country of Iraq. So on the front side, we're going to call it, the, the side we'll call heads, is the 3rd Battalion, 6th Marines logo, 2 Fulhundin. And on the back is uh, the tail side is going to be these four logos. Three of them are for Iraqi police, Iraqi special forces, and Iraqi army. And then there's that really cool one up at the top. Could you tell me what that one is, Daniel? The United States Marine Corps. Rah. Rah. All right, so here goes the, to- the coin toss. And as the independent guess, it landed on tails, so you have to argue against. That is correct. I have to argue against. So now that we've established that whatever we're about to talk about, you immediately don't like, what is our topic today? (laughs) Okay, so our topic's going to be the 1033 program, which is also, uh, it's basically the program that allows uh, local police departments to request and receive surplus military equipment from the Department of Defense. Right on. So uh, I get half an hour to prepare my case for being in favor of that, correct? Yes. And I get a half an hour to prepare my case, which is to say that I am against the 1033 program. And these are not necessarily our personal uh, opinions, but rather uh, just us taking a debate stance as if we were a lawyer assigned to a case. Right. So one of the, the tenets of the show is that Whatever side the coin lands on is the side that I have to argue. It is not necessarily my personal opinion. 
if I have a guest on the show and they're like, I don't know, a, a lobbyist for the NRA and the coin flips one way, they got to argue against gun lobby. Quite a dangerous show to be a guest on. What have I gotten myself into? Well, the way I look at it is this. Everybody knows the coin flip is what shows it, right? And if you remember the military like we both are, you're familiar with an expression called turning the map around. Yes. Right? So if I'm if I'm the good guy and I'm in a combat zone, I'm going to take and I'm going to flip the map around literally and figuratively and say, if I'm the enemy, how can I hurt me the most? And by looking at it that way, we can kind of find the holes and the gaps in our defenses and shore those up. So arguing for a program you like or you don't like or arguing against a program that you do like, you can find all the holes and gaps in your arguments and maybe learn a thing or two. Fantastic. Then after uh, we take our 30 minutes, um, how do we present our arguments to each other after that? Well, everybody's going to get five minutes, right? And we're going to set the precedent today. The guest goes first. So when we come back, you'll have five minutes to present your argument in favor of the 1033 program. Little home field advantage there for yourself. Well, I'm not going to say that I won't be able to listen to you talk first and then be sitting over here like a snidely whiplash, like an evil villain twirling my mustache while I write down my counterpoints. (laughs) Um, But uh, I figure it's best to let the guest go first, right? Because you're the guest. And um, I'm probably going to have already written what I put down during my 30-minute part. And so if I have to revise stuff on the way, it's going to sound like garbage. All right, then. So do you want to go ahead and take that break now? That's it. We're taking the break. All right, folks. We'll be back. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. And we're back from our research period. So Daniel and I have had our 30 minutes to go ahead and do our research and write some stuff down and hopefully sound pithy. And so Daniel gets five minutes on the clock in order to argue for the 1033 program. All right, so we have the most powerful military in the history of the world. And with that, there is a lot of fraud, waste, and abuse of our spending. That is one of the uh, biggest things that is a corrosion to our military. For example, uh, last fiscal year alone, the Inspector General recovered over $1.17 billion and arrested 134 people in direct relation to fraud, waste, and abuse. 94 government contracts were suspended and 166 disbarment of government contractors. Now, why is this important? Because we have such a surplus of gear. Well, that is inherently based on the fact that we are required to be ready for whatever mission we are assigned for and whatever we are tasked, whether it's a humanitarian mission in South Asia or a drug addiction mission in South America. We have to have the gear that we need on hand. And unfortunately, there comes a little bit of a turnover. I personally can attest to the fact that I've seen tons of equipment and gear just wasting away in a supply warehouse with nobody uh, using them. However, the things that are listed in the 1033 program go directly to the uh, near 1,800 law enforcement agencies that we have around the country. Now, these all aren't the FBI. These all aren't SWAT departments. There's a fair amount of them that are just small agencies with small budgets. Inherently, the more rural the area is, the more difficult it can be tra- uh, to traverse in certain uh, parts. And also, inherently, the more rural it is, the less people there are to pay taxes to fund these types of budgets. Now, the majority of the things that are acquired by the 1033 program is office furniture, 
exercise equipment, tents, generators, cranes, tractors with plows for snow and other uh, recovery items. So after uh, the first year, the items are listed as controlled property. They still belong to the U.S. government. Then after one year, they belong to the department. Sheriff Ben Begol of a county in Michigan said that these programs are important to his department because it allows them to sell the old equipment that they have and use that to fund new social programs. And then additionally, if they get something that they maybe did not have a need for as much as they initially thought they did, they can also sell that to raise more funds for their program. Now, it's not just them selling these items and getting them from the government. The majority of the larger vehicles that are being used are used uh, in recovery efforts and uh, post-natural disaster efforts dealing with things like tornadoes and wildfires and flash floods. You have departments in rural areas that do occasionally get a large vehicle that they can use for uh, recovery efforts of vehicles or to get through uh, difficult terrain and unfavorable conditions to rescue people and to set up uh, casualty points and evacuation points and to run supplies in and out. USnews.com called the program boring, said that, yeah, there are occasionally some trucks and some military equipment that are more offensive in nature being used, but the majority of it is things like toner and light bulbs. Chief Perry Wagner of the Reservoir Police in Ridgeland, Mississippi, said that he would hate to see the program go away. He is in charge of a small agency that covers five counties in rural Mississippi. He says the most beneficial things they have gotten from the program are boats, extension cords, and light bulbs. There are even police officers in Sanford in the state of Maine that say that's where they get their underwear from. So the idea of this being such an ominous program that is just meant to militize, militarize the police just simply isn't accurate. The GSA supply catalog alone states they have nearly 7,500 items that are available. These all items that are in surplus are placed on these things. So you have thousands and thousands of non-offensive items that are being given to different departments. In a statement by the Fraternal Order of Police, they said studies have shown this equipment in regards to the 1033 program reduces crime rates, reduces the numbers of assaults against police officers, and reduces the number of complaints against police officers. So now all that being said, in closing, this program is responsible for funneling over $5 billion to local law enforcement agencies. Even the Justice Department has stated that a military-style helmet saved the life of a responding officer to a mass shooting in my hometown of Orlando, Florida. I, for one, feel more safe knowing that a lot of these departments have these large, more capable vehicles in order to keep their communities safe. As a testament to the professionalism of my ho- my co-host, my guest, <laughs> it was exactly five minutes and 14 seconds. Well, by the time I stopped talking to get my finger there. I'm, I'm just saying, I, I, I'm <laughs> sure as this program, as this uh, podcast goes on, if we can gain some traction, which I believe we will. Yeah. Uh, I, it's going to be, there's going to be times when it'll be like, really, that was like six and a half minutes. And you're like, boop, five minutes, what you got? <laughs> All right, now that my gracious host has given me the opportunity to speak, it is his turn now. So we'll go ahead and reset the clock. You have five minutes to present your case and go. 
Well, there are studies to suggest that the increase in militarization within civilian police departments, rather than decreasing crime, increases the distance between the department and the community it serves. While it can seem reasonable to some that the equipment's there, why not use it? That argument tends to ring a little less true when it comes to rolling down the streets of Pearl River, Louisiana, population 2600, which is my hometown. With a mine-resistant ambush-protected vehicle weighing in between 14 to 18 tons and carrying a police officer dressed like a Marine in Sangat, Afghanistan with an M240 medium machine gun mounted in a turret. Several times this program's come under scrutiny for abuses. The, Def- the Defense Logistics Agency Public Affairs Chief Kenneth McNevin stated in 2012 that more than 30 Arizona police agencies have been suspended or terminated for failing to meet program standards and nine remain under suspe- suspicion. One of them is Maricopa County, Arizona law enforcement. After failing to account for 20 of the 200 military weapons it received. Now, I'm not sure exactly which ones these are or are not, but 20 out of 200 is a pretty high number of guns to just go missing. We all remember 3-6 got in some trouble back in the day for missing two rifles and a, and a, and a set of body armor, not like 10% of their entire armory. Uh, so the suspension did not affect police acquisition of high-powered rifles due to its anti-racketeering or confiscated drug funds, according to Maricopa County Sheriff. The program's been criticized over the years by the media, the DOD Inspector General in 2003, and the Government Accountability Office, which all found waste, fraud, waste, and abuse. It's not until media coverage of the police during the 2014 Ferguson unrest that the program drew national, um, sorry, nationwide public attention. Whereas in the Ferguson Police Department had used equipment obtained through the 1033 program, the ACLU and the NAACP have both raised concerns about what they call the military militarization of police forces in the United States. President Obama signed an executive order number 13688 in May 2015 limiting and prohibiting certain types of equipment, which was then repealed on 28 August of 2017 by President Trump, who rolled back that executive order. Attorney General Jeff Sessions announced the move at a Fraternal Order of Police convention in Nashville and said the president would do so by executive order. At the same time, Sessions and the director of the Fraternal Order of Police pointed out the equipment obtained through the program can be used for life-saving purposes in order to dismiss criticism of the program as, quote, superficial concerns. The Fraternal Order of Police also pointed out that the armored vehicles were not tanks. They felt that need to point that out. In North Carolina, law officials are working to reinstate the 1033 program through more rigorous inventory management after the state was suspended for failing to account for some of its transferred equipment. North Carolina officials stated that 3,303 out of the 4,227 pieces of equipment obtained through the program are tactical items, including automatic weapons, military vehicles, and that the remainder is not used in combat, which they said remainder, but that's less than 1,000 of the 4,200 pieces they got. This includes cots, containers, and generators. Fusion reported in 2014 that a total of 184 state and local police departments have been suspended from the program for missing weapons and failure to comply with guidelines. Missing items include M14 and M16 assault rifles, pistols, shotguns, and two Humvees, which means they lost two entire vehicles. How you lose those, I have no idea. I yield my time, sir. Well, I, uh, I will say that you, uh, you did make some, some very good points there. So what happens now? So at this point, um, it's a free-for-all. I get, to, I get to beat your points up, and you get to beat my points up. Well, um, I will say with all, uh, with all honesty, uh, it is difficult to uh, counter some of those things that you say. 
But what I will say is that the majority of the program is designed not for those tactical items, but rather for the aforementioned items that we uh, we spoke. And so I do feel that there would be some benefit to uh, reform. However, it's not the program's fault that there was incompetent leadership. That's a, that's a fair point. But at the same time, it is the program's fault that they didn't take the time or put some kind of measurement in place that made it to where there was accountability being held for these items. Well, the thing is, is that the public is supposed to hold uh, certain offices accountable. For example, the uh, sheriff's office is a publicly elected um, office. So I feel that if a population has a problem with what the um, the leaders of those bodies are doing, that is their responsibility to come out and vote. It is their responsibility to campaign uh, for reform. It is their responsibility to make their voice heard to the local leaders, whether it be the mayor or the police chief, to say, hey, we want accountability of this because if a few people, and now I granted I know that is a bit anecdotal, a few is a bit low compared to the numbers you said, but overall compared to the 18,000 law enforcement agencies, you have a few examples where the program was abused. However, that is not the fault of the program. I feel like when you say uh, 30 Arizona police agencies and the entire state of North Carolina like even if I don't have anything else to put in that general box, that's two states out of fifty. So we're talking um, trying to do math in my head. So two out of fifty—that's four out of a hundred. If we're trying to do math, so that's four uh, percent. About that. Okay. So if four percent of all the weapons went missing out of the armory at your unit, do you think they'd be like, well, you know, maybe we should just vote for a better battalion commander? Well, I, I see where you're coming from then, but the, uh, at the same time, the solution wouldn't be let's stop buying weapons completely. So the, the general gist of the program here is that they it, this is DOD uh, surplus, right? So if the DOD has surplus items, let's say the battalion, uh, every battalion in the Marine Corps needs X number of rifles. So let's say they need 1,000. So we buy 2,000. And the reason we buy 2,000 is because things wear out, things fall apart. Um, you can easily have a weapon destroyed because of bad ammo or it gets, you know, the the Marine gets knocked off the side of a mountain and the, the weapon goes rolling down a hill and then it's broken and we need a new one, right? No fault of anybody, shit happens. And sometimes things just break. That's why there's an entire uh, job in the military field dedicated to repairing weapons. Exactly. Shit happens. So... Nobody's saying it's a bad idea to have this surplus, but if the military needs this surplus in order to to be able to do its mission, why are we saying, oh, we've got so much surplus, let's just give it out to cops? Well, so the, the idea behind that is, is if you have a forward deployed unit and they have a job to be done... Uh, they plan out their equipment, and it's not—it's not just the weapons. And as you've stated before, it was generators and much other th- and many other items. But say they have a wep- uh, a weapon requirement, a gear requirement for this mission set, they are given nine months to stand up whatever uh, local militia or train whatever partner nation military or accomplish a certain objective in a region. Say those guys do a fantastic job and they're only there for three months. Now that's six months worth of wear and tear equipment that is considered surplus. Now now you're saying if we cancel the program, that's kind of punishing those guys for doing a better job and giving them more incentive to drag their feet. Well, the military is not punished for it because what happens with them is 
their surplus, the extra, the extra that they didn't need, is now being given to local local uh, uh, police departments within the United States, wherein the idea of the U.S. military is not supposed to be, well, we have this one mission and that one mission. Like we're not saying, oh, we have ten missions this year. We're going to buy this and this for those ten missions. Like, and and again, I'm I'm coming from a place of being a Marine veteran here. Stuff can pop off at any moment. So let's say we have 10 units that are in the field uh, it doing these these pop-up missions, uh, say like down in South America doing drug interdiction, right? And they all go down there, they do their job, they do it well, they come back early, they come back with all their equipment. Yes, but what happens with the next 10 missions? We just buy them all for a brand new equipment and surplus? Or do we say, well, we have that surplus left over? I mean, the military doesn't change weapons that often. So... Yes, but we do have contracts that we uh, are required to fulfill our end, whether it's uh, Colt or FN, uh, whatever the, the the company may be that uh, supplies those generators or weapons or vehicles, whatever the case is. We've already bought all the stuff that we have. Now it's just a matter of how much of that are we going to use. And so now when you transition back that to this argument, what would you say to those uh, departments that primarily get things like office supplies when you proposition to uh, debunk the program, well, I'm not saying that the program's completely useless. So let's let, we get back off a little bit from that. I'm not saying scrap the whole thing. Nobody gets shit because I do like the idea if it's if it's non tactical equipment of giving stuff to fire to uh, police departments that they need. If it's copiers or if it's fax machines or if it's bot even body armor, I'm okay with right. Body armor is a non offensive thing. But when you talk about, oh, well, we're giving them all this office equipment and we're giving them all this cable or, you know, uh, generators or whatnot, of the, like, 30 things that the top most requested, the first most requested item is magazines, and that's somewhere in the range of 140,000 magazines. The second, or the third most requested is uh, 5.56 rifles. The eighth most requested is reflex sites, so uh, aim points and EOTechs. Like you have to go f- so far down the list until you get to something like that's typically used in a lot of these arguments. Like they say, oh, well, they get underwear. Underwear is number 26 in the list. Now, see, with that, though, there is a far bigger surplus for the office items. So those are less likely to um, be in demand and in limited supply. A reason why some of these items are requested so much is the fact that they're not always readily available. So you have to continue to put requests in until eventually you can hopefully get something that uh, you requested. Furthermore, if we are uh, distributing weapons and ammo in bulk, that gives you the opportunity to have more price control, make sure that they're sourced correctly. And additionally to that, the more time that officers get on the range, the more proficient they will be. Now, if you if you look at certain studies, it shows that uh, the New York Police Department, when they're in a shootout with bad guys, there's an 18% hit rate. So out of all the rounds that they shoot, 18% of the rounds strike their target. Now, if we have a surplus of 9 mil ammunition, that might give them the opportunity to become more proficient, hit more targets, and as a result, there will be less stray rounds that could possibly damage property and ultimately possibly save lives by um, reducing the number of bystanders that might possibly be struck. And again, I have no problem with the training of, of local, lo- lo- local law enforcement. Um, I know that where we live, 
Law enforcement here, every time I see them, they are completely tacked out with vests. They have their body cameras on, all that good stuff. I have no problem with making sure they have what they need. But at the same time, like we're giving out military weapons, we're giving out military vehicles, we're giving out mine-resistant, ambush-protected vehicles that are these massive... They're not tanks. I'll grant you that. Nobody's handing out A1 Abrams to, to you know, Maricopa County. But at the same time, if we're handing out Bearcats, which are uh, armored vehicles, what the hell do they need those for? A lot of times they ruin the, the, the streets they're driving on. And uh, a point that was brought up to me uh, at a different point was... Okay, so we're going to give you this $500,000 armored vehicle for the protection of the officers. That's great. Who is paying for the maintenance of those vehicles? Who's paying for the spare tires? Who's paying for the d- the damage to the streets? So you give them the $500,000 vehicle because they say they need it so badly, but then it puts a multi-million dollar burden on the taxpayers in that area. Well, that, that is true, and we would just hope that the, um, the, dis- the discretion of the local law enforcement agency that is in charge of that would prevail. However, it is not just limited to those things. If we give them tractors, if we give them cranes, then they have as as opportunity to uh, not purchase um, those things and then have more money for disposable things. Like, for example, uh, the majority of uh, law enforcement departments that receive large vehicles, they either don't purchase one that they were planning on doing uh, or that they sell it at a certain point. Now they have more money for funds. And you brought up an interesting point earlier when it comes to body cams. Far and away, the cities that have body cams show a reduction in complaints against the officer, complaints um, uh, about uh, excessive use of force, the use of uh, lethal and less than lethal force, and as well as uh, the amount of suspects that resist arrest. So now you can take that as whether some people say that the officers will behave more because they have a camera on them. Other people will say that the reason because of that is the suspects now know that their actions are being recorded and they can't make fraudulent claims later. They can't say that an officer abused them. They can't say that they were not existing arrests when the evidence is right there. So now that these departments that don't have to buy light bulbs and printer paper and toner and extension cords, they can spend money on body cams and everybody agrees that that keeps our citizens more safe. I I will say I do like the body cam program. And, and this is separate from my general vow that whatever we're arguing is is strictly based on the coin toss. I'll say that my personal opinion is that body cams are a fantastic idea. And every cop I've talked to loves the body cams because not only it, do, it does everything you said as far as like reducing the likelihood of, of um, it makes sure that everybody's held accountable. And it makes sure that when uh, there's a complaint against an officer that officer can bring that body cam footage in and be like, here, take a look, see what I did and exactly what I did right and exactly what he said I did wrong, and we'll both know who's really right and wrong in this situation. And so the majority of cops I know all say, hey, this is a great, we love body cams. These are fantastic. This, This makes the paperwork of my job a lot easier. And I'm not saying we shouldn't have that. But I'm saying that if we have... Let's look at it from a macro perspective, right? We've got the the DOD is buying all of this government equipment, and let's say they need it. They they whatever person in the comptroller's office or whatever that's deciding they need X number of uh, of Bearcats and X number of rifles and X number of ammunition, and they overestimate for whatever reason. Wouldn't it be better if we had a federal body cam program that was paid for by the federal government and reduced military spending because? I'm pretty sure there's some math in there 
where if we bought 50 Bearcats, like the $500,000 a piece for the base model, I'm not going to do math in my head. I'm really bad at that. But I'm pretty sure that that money could be better spent buying a butt ton of body cams to be passed out. In summation, uh, what uh, revisions to the program would you suggest? Well, first of all, I think tactical equipment has to be very, very heavily scrutinized. I know that any military, whether it's the the Marine Corps, the Army, the Navy, the, the, the Air Force, I can't speak to the Coast Guard because I've never seen one of them with a gun, but their armories, their armorers are held accountable for every single, uh, what do they call those things? Um, EDL? Equipment no, destiny list? The, the, there's their Q-tips, cotton tip applicators. That's what the CTA is. Oh, okay. Right. So it's like a Q-tip, but instead of being two-ended, it's like one-ended and it's got a long stick on it. Every single CTA is accounted for. That's how small and minute the accountability is in those offices. If an if an office of a law enforcement agency loses a rifle, those officers better be out there in line with flashlights figuring out where the fuck that thing went. And if it's not, somebody needs to be charged. Like, if you or I lost a rifle, we're going in front of the man, right? They need to be put in front of the man, too. If you're losing Humvees, you got, you got to be popping tall in front of the man and explaining where the hell that went, and you better go fucking find it. So to uh, defend the position with my uh, my final remarks, I would say that I do see the benefit of segregating the program as far as tactical items and non-tactical items because the amount of good that the non-tactical items do is indisputable. However, where things become a gray area and whether, uh, where the majority of our debate has sprung up is the lack of accountability for tactical items. So perhaps there needs to be a 1034 program, which is specifically to that, and has more oversight. I like that idea. We basically, and, and this is the part of the show that I really like, is that we kind of both agree, even though we have different, different points, which is that nobody's saying that a law enforcement office shouldn't get the equipment they need. We're just saying that the equipment they sh- get should be held accountable. And that this is another point. I'm going to bring this up. This is kind of part of my argument, but um, I, I was floating in the back of my head. And it's, it's, uh, if anybody's seen Super Troopers 2, there's a part of this where it comes in the movie. Um, we all know that a lot of, a large portion of law enforcement officers are prior military. And I got to tell you, if you take the standard grunt and you hand them the order manual, right? Like the, the, the book from the GSA or the GSO that has all the, uh, all the stuff you can order in it, they're going to be like, I want the GPS tracker. I want the five pairs of past 21 thermal imaging overlay night vision. I want all this cool shit. Yeah, you want it, but do you need it? And I guess that's really my main point is, do you really need all that stuff? Or is this stuff that you're getting because it's available? And if it is available, why is it available? And what is the cost to the taxpayer? Well, that seems like a, a good place to put a bow on it. I like it. I, th- I think it was it was short. It was concise, but it was it was it was clear cut. I like it. All right. So, uh, would you like to take us out? Well, go ahead and follow us on Parlor at the Foxhole. Go ahead and follow us on Twitter at at Foxhole underscore podcast, and then go ahead and follow us on IG at the Foxhole Official. Go ahead and give us a like, and uh, if you have an idea for the show, send it to us in the DMs. And do be advised, if you send us a really good idea and we decide to go with it, we might select you to be our next guest. That's all we have here from the Foxhole for this evening. 
And I'm going to go ahead and end with the words of Edward R. Murrow, who said, good night and good luck. <laughs>